0: All right, well, uh, why don't we we stand together and I'll read the word of God to you. Matthew chapter six, verse nine through 13. Jesus says, "In, in this manner, therefore pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your instruction always. It's for us to, to study and to consider and to implement in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand the nature of your instruction here and that it would definitely be incorporated into our discipline of prayer. Lord, our, our privilege of prayer to come before you with our requests, our needs, to come to you in worship. So help us, Lord, we pray. And Lord, we thank you for little Naomi and uh, that everyone is healthy. Um, just pray that you would be with them and, and Lord, help them to celebrate with joy all that you've granted to them. Pray that you'd be with their little boy as well and um, that his arm would heal quickly and um, and Lord, you're very much aware of so many hurts and struggles in our church right now with friends and family. Lord, I trust that you, you have all these people in your grip and that you are ministering to their pain, Lord, emotionally and physically. And um, help them to receive it and experience it, Lord. In Jesus' name, <clears throat> amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right, well, let's, let's begin. Jesus says, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven. Or we can say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I think it's important to, uh, of course, always to keep this in the whole context. And the context that Jesus couches all of this in is it's immediately contrasted with the prayers of the pagans who prayed to their deities faithfully, even though their deities cared nothing the worshiper. And Jesus said, do not be like the heathen, uh, not in the way of their repetitious babbling, nor in their concept of God. He says, avoid both of these things. You see, their gods were distant, they were disinterested. As we said last week, they were vain, and they were immoral. And the pagans would beg and plead with their deities, hoping to gain their request. And they wouldn't do it the way that we would. We go to our God and we appeal to God's character, his love his goodness, his grace, his concern, the pagan would have to appeal to the vanity of their gods. Imagine that. Appealing to the vanity of a god who is immoral and does not care for you. And when we read uh, historical documents, we find that oftentimes the, the pagans would do this with all kinds of wild and strange behavior. Okay? Even today, you can see that. Uh, we know from the scriptures, the story of Elijah, uh, there on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, they, they pleaded with their gods throughout the day. And they were it says they were leaping about the altar. And then when there was no response, they began to cut themselves with knives and lances. And they were prophesying until evening. And of course, uh, not without Elijah taunting them, uh, teasing them about their god. These prophets of Baal, they believed they needed to exhaust themselves in all kinds of undignified behavior and even dangerous behavior to get the attention of their God. They might impress him, a God that didn't really care at all. But for the people of Christ, it, it is to our Father that we bring our requests. Okay? And as Jesus says, our Father knows what we need before we ask. This is very sweet. As we talked about last week, he knows beforehand because he's intimately involved. He's been watching. He's looking over us, his children. And so when we pray, we address him as he really is. He is our father, our father. I think it's important to ask the question, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did he, the God of heaven, become our father? How could we be so presumptuous as to refer to this God as our daddy? You know, Jesus, by the way, wasn't a Greek speaker from which you know, Matthew was written in Greek. Jesus was an Aramaic speaker. And so he said, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy. Our sonship to the Father is, of course, because of Christ. It was by the redemption that is in Christ that we have been adopted into the family of God. Paul says that God predestined us to adoption as sons, of course, as daughters, by Jesus Christ to himself. And, and I love this. It was according to to the good pleasure of his will. We are the children of God by adoption, by God's good pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. John says that as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. He's given us the right to be children of God through faith in the name of Christ, John 1.12. So we can with confidence say that God is the creator of all but he is not the father of all he is only the father to the believer so god is our father and therefore as the author of hebrews says we can enter boldly into the throne of grace the presence of god he says so that we might obtain mercy and find grace in time of need hebrews 4:16 so for us there is no presumption in calling him father there's no presumption in approaching him as our daddy but also, we have to keep in mind that <clears throat> he's not our earthly father, and he's not to be compared to him. Not to be compared to him. And I know that for some of you, that, that comes as a relief. Some of our earthly fathers, rather than being a blessing to our existence, uh, they were a curse. So when you consider our father in heaven, uh, there's just no comparison down here. He is something holy and completely different. You may have had a wonderful father, but he pales in comparison. Okay, He pales. God is not our earthly father. Jesus says, our father who is in heaven. Now this address, <clears throat> the, the way that Jesus instructs us to address our father is really beautiful. Jesus describes God the father to us in his imminence, his transcendence, and his holiness. When we say our father, we're speaking of God's, that he is imminent. but that he is in heaven speaks of his transcendence. And that when we say Hollywood, we're talking about his holiness. In theological terms, when referring to what we call the nearness of God, we say that he is imminent, but not simply close to us in proximity. You can be very near to an enemy, right? So God isn't just near to his children in proximity. He's close to us in the sense of intimacy, relationally, provisionally. When we look at the the imminence of God in the scriptures, we read things like this. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, Psalm thirty-four, eighteen, and, and those who have had a broken heart know this by experience. Their daddy is near to them, okay? The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, Psalm 46, 1. <clears throat> the psalmist says, you are near to me, O Lord, Psalm 119, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Psalm 1 of 45, 18. And for those that are experiencing difficulty, of course, one of the most famous psalms. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's near. The Lord said to Joshua, <clears throat> he says, have I not commanded you? To be strong and of good courage, to not be afraid nor dismayed because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, Joshua 1.9. Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation. 2 Corinthians 1.3. He's not just present. He's intimate. He's relational. We could say that God is intimately imminent always when it concerns his kids, always. He's not just near, he's with us, he's our daddy. And Jesus says that he should be addressed accordingly. There was a movement in church history where the sense of, you know, the awe of God uh, was so prevalent in the church that they believed then they were being presumptuous to call God Father. Just like the Jews will not say the covenant name of God, so they abbreviate it and say Yah. They will not say Yahweh. But the problem is, is that God in the Old Testament commands his people to call upon him with his name. And Jesus here is commanding, he's instructing us to go to God and say, our daddy, our daddy. It's not presumption. But while contemplating his imminence, we are not to lose sight of his transcendence. He is, he remains to be Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, transcendence, is oftentimes confused for what is distant. It doesn't doesn't mean distant. It actually means beyond, beyond. But when the scriptures describe God's transcendence to us, it's very interesting. He's still with us, but he's beyond us. God asked Jeremiah this question. He says, "'Can anyone hide himself in secret places "'so I shall not see him?' says the Lord. "'Do I not fill heaven and earth?' says the Lord." Jeremiah 23, 24. Isaiah said, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants of it are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah 40, 20-21. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon said, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. How much less this temple which I have built. 1 Kings 8.27. Isaiah said, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Listen to that. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Isaiah 57.15. I love how Genesis simply says it. It says, In the beginning. Now, that's, of course, a reference to time. God created the heavens. That's a reference to space. Created the heavens and the earth. That's matter. Time, space, and matter. God who brought all things into existence out from absolutely nothing precedes and transcends space and time. That could be a very long discussion. He stands outside of it, yet he permeates all of it. He dwells in creation, but he's never to be confused with it. As the the ancient philosophers of Scripture would say, he is the uncaused causer, the uncreated creator, the unmoved mover who was and is and is to come. Nothing before him, nothing after him. He simply is. Or as God said himself, I am. A statement of just utter eternality. And so Moses, of course, who heard that language first from God, he then commented on it saying before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting you are God our our god our father is both imminent and he's transcendent we should enter into his presence boldly because he's our father but because he is also our transcendent god we must not enter in presumptuously there's a, a fine tuning <laughs> In all of that, he, he's not to be taken for granted. He's still the Lord God omnipotent, that is all powerful, who reigns over all things. He's the judge of all the living and the dead, who raises up kings, as Daniel says, and kingdoms, and then he humbles them as he pleases, and he can do it in an instant. You know, trembling with boldness, it sounds so weird, doesn't it? Trembling with boldness are actually virtues when standing in the throne of grace, because God is both Father and Sovereign. And then following these two concepts, Jesus then addresses what ought to be our first petition, our first petition, which addresses our Father's holiness. You see, in contrast with the pagans, the gods of the pagans, uh, they were not imminent in the sense of intimacy. They were thought of incorrectly as being transcendent, But the last thing they were, was holy. (laughs) Their gods were not holy. But our God, he is holy. Hallowed be your name. Now, first of all, this is not a request that God would be holy or that he would become holy. You see, God cannot become holy. He cannot increase or decrease in holiness. The truth is, God does not have the potential to do anything or to become anything. He is holy what he is. He cannot increase or decrease in knowledge or power or wisdom. If God could learn anything, if he could learn just one thing, he would not be God. He might be an exalted being of some kind, a pagan God, but he would not be the Lord God Almighty who from everlasting to everlasting, the creator is and has always been what he is. He, he can't become any different. He cannot change in any way. To become something would require change. To decrease in something would require change. And God is absolutely incapable of it. Theologians have always said that God is, has no potentiality. And I'm so glad he doesn't. Okay? He is what he is. So when Jesus calls upon us to pray, Hallowed be your name, we're not asking God to become something or to become more of something. We are petitioning God to help us to hallow him. That is to treat him, to regard him, to honor him for what he is. That is to, to have more of a revelation of his holiness. It's for us to recognize, to learn, and to regard him accordingly. So the question is, I think for us, is what does that look like? How, how is it to be understood? How do we, under, how do we experience this? There, there's a lot of good examples in Scripture, but I think that... Isaiah's experience with this is probably the most impacting, at least for me. If it doesn't do it for you, I can give you a list of a whole bunch of others, and hopefully it'll mean something to you. Isaiah reports in Isaiah 6, he says, In the same year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah the prophet had a vision of the Lord sitting on the throne. And in his vision, God was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each of them had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the doorposts were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, understand, the the great prophet Isaiah, when he found himself standing before the throne of God, he was confronted and he was overwhelmed by God's holiness, his purity, his sanctity, and his majesty. And then it dawned upon him, in light of God's holiness, that he recognized his own unholiness, that he was dirty and morally unfit to stand in the presence of God. Isaiah the prophet, of whom no sin is recorded in the scriptures. And he found himself morally unfit to be standing there. And then Isaiah rightly experienced a sense of dread, a sense of doom It wasn't merely presumptuous for him to stand in the presence of God. You guys, it was dangerous. He, He realized the danger that he was in because he was so morally unfit. Every sin is an affront to a holy God. And so when Jesus went to the cross, bearing all the sins of humanity in his body, he exposed himself to the holiness of God. He put himself in the most dangerous position possible, that he might draw the wrath of God away from us, the sinner, and onto himself. And at that moment, as the cross clung to its victim, God's justice rained down from heaven, and the sinless one was punished for the sinner. Why? Because God is holy, purely because he's holy. And so Jesus is instructing us to petition God to help us regard him for what he is that we could come before him with a sense of awe. So we would say, God, our Father, help us to hallow your name, to regard you as holy, and to see ourselves in light of your holiness, just as Isaiah did, or maybe as Moses did, or Joshua, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Peter. I love that. When Peter finally recognized who he was dealing with, he said, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. John, in his vision, he sees the the glorified Christ, and he's unable to stand in his presence. Jesus actually has to revive him. It's great. You can read all about it in Revelation chapter 1. You guys, it is because of this first petition <clears throat> that we must guard ourselves from just reciting this prayer without reflecting deeply on what Jesus is saying. You get it, don't you? Wrote memory, reciting, over and over and over. You can lose the sense of what Jesus is trying to say here. This instruction requires meditation, thought, intelligent thought about who God is. To recite it but give no real thought to what we're saying, I believe, is presumptuous. It's to make light of it. It's to reduce it of its gravity. It's to rob it of of what is sacred. We're speaking to the God who hears us. We're not speaking into the air. Amen. He hears us. If we can get this first petition right, we won't fumble the rest. We won't fumble the rest let's look at it. <clears throat> Jesus says in our prayers to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This second and third petition has everything to do with the reality of God's will and his kingdom manifesting itself here on earth in the exact same way that his kingdom and will are being exercised in heaven. What a staggering thought. What a staggering thought for his kingdom to reside here with us and for his will to reign supreme. Could you imagine such a thing, especially at this time in history when there's been a complete reversal of anything noble and pure, to have it come back to what Jesus is saying here? In heaven, God's He rules unquestionably, unquestioned, Angels come and go at his bidding immediately and joyfully. Worship is perpetual, and his word is final. Imagine planet Earth being so finely tuned and in harmony with God's righteousness. What an amazing thought. And understand something, that Jesus would never command us to pray for something that his father never intended to grant. Just the thought of it is silly, isn't it? Pray for something that my father never intends to do. It's ridiculous. You guys, God will manifest his kingdom and he will exercise his sovereignty and his will on planet earth. He will send Christ back into the world, Hebrews 1.6, and he will reign over the earth. Jesus says that we should be praying for what God intends to do. We should be looking forward to it in faith. I'm always fascinated by Paul's use of words. He says that grace actually functions in a teaching capacity. How many of you guys think of yourselves as the pupil of of grace, or under the tutelage of grace. You know, we talk about grace being undeserved favor. What is wrong with my nose? Let me fix that. (sighs) Yeah, so Paul says that grace actually functions in a teaching capacity so that we will look forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 Grace also teaches us to abstain from ungodliness and to walk in holiness uh, in the previous verses, but he says that grace actually teaches us to look forward to his glorious appearing. Isn't that crazy? So it was grace that caused John to cry out and say, even so, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul talks about those who love Christ's appearing. So we're to pray, we're to look forward, to love God's kingdom and will being manifested here on earth, I love it. When the king returns, the kingdom established, his righteousness enforced, at which time the whole earth is going to experience his glory. A Greek scholar, uh, D.A. Carson, who I've learned much from over the years, he comments on this verse, on, the, on all of it here, but specifically on this verse. He says, <clears throat> the first three petitions, though they focus on God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will, are nevertheless prayers that he may act in such a way that his people will hallow his name, submit to his reign, and do his will. It is therefore impossible to pray this prayer in sincerity without humbly committing oneself to such a course. This prayer requires action. So we're currently in an era where God has commanded us not only to obey his word, but to fulfill his commission, that, that we might draw out of this world citizens for his kingdom, We cannot pray this prayer without being mindful of the task that God has given to us to go into the world and make disciples who would be subjects in this kingdom. Jesus would say, Don't just pray, but go. Don't just pray, but go. Verse 11, he says, Give us this day our daily bread. These last petitions focus on our needs, and I know that in Western society we're more interested in our neediness. that's not what this is. Okay. Jesus is speaking to a culture where people lived paycheck by paycheck. But we think of paycheck by paycheck as being every two weeks or once a month. That's not what the average first century person lived. That's not what that means in the first century. Paycheck by paycheck was day by day. They got paid the day they worked. The law required that they had to be paid at the end of the day. So they lived day by day. Day by day. Very interesting Our needs. The first three petitions dealt with things pertaining to God, His name, His kingdom, and His will. But now it's it's our needs. The first petition here regarding our needs has to do uh, purely with what is our necessities. But the request should remind the petitioner of the reality that we are truly, in reality, dependent upon God. On God. Okay. God is faithful to provide, and we should look to Him for our provisions. <clears throat> but in our asking, we should always be reminded of this sober reality that all life depends on his gracious hand, okay? Because at any moment, all that we take for granted, every, every good thing that we possess, all of our comforts could be taken away, even those of the believer. Just ask our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Have you guys seen the devastation? Those cities have been completely laid waste. And what are there now, 4 million refugees that have been that are in Poland and other places, and another few million have been displaced. It's insane. How many weeks has it been? A few weeks, yeah. Solomon says that money has a way of growing wings and flying away. So to trust in wealth is a foolish religion. Famine is always on the horizon in some quarter of the earth. It it is in Ukraine right now. Israel is trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do for wheat for the Passover. Because most of their wheat comes from Ukraine. I I, I was looking at images of wheat fields in Ukraine. What a beautiful thing that it was. It will not be this fall or spring in Ukraine, however it works over there. In Israel, the barley harvest is in April. I'm trying to do the 50-day thing in the Bible, and then the wheat harvest is at Pentecost, so it's early spring. Definitely wouldn't happen here, would it? (laughs) It's crazy. Famine. I've heard that inflation is always possible, Wars imminent, ongoing. Um, Some of you have heard of government greed and corruption. Floods, weather, rob people of their livelihood, even their homes. Insurance companies drop us, our health fails, our friends abandon us. Stock markets tank and industries fail. And when they do, I'm afraid that this prayer, these instructions will become important to give us this day our daily bread to hope in anything earthly is to invite disappointment and failure. All of our hope should be directed toward our daddy, who, scriptures say, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He's promised that he will supply all our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4. Even while we may have an abundance of many things, we should be careful not to lose sight of our real hope. In fact, it is in times of abundance, you guys, that our heart is most vulnerable to trust things other than God. I believe Western society is in serious trouble right now. Imagine what our society would do if all their cell phones died. Or there was no Wi-Fi, heaven forbid. God is our true source of provision. He says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, a debt is an offense that requires reparation, restitution. It implies that some form of harm or damage has been done, harm done to someone's person. It could be a financial loss, social damage to one's reputation. Jesus, Those are some of the worst kind, aren't they? And Jesus instructs us to go to God and request forgiveness for our own fences against him, but not before we've extended the same forgiveness that we hope to receive. All, all of the things that Jesus could have commented on. This is so interesting about human nature. Of everything that he, he could have given commentary on regarding this, his instruction for prayer, he was compelled to comment on this issue, this responsibility that we have. He does it in verse 14 and 15. We talked about it last week. He, he provides a real condition, a real condition. And in my experience, we are just as quick to ask for forgiveness from God as we are to withhold it from others. We are a strange species on planet earth. We go to God actually expecting him to forgive our sins, but we're reluctant to forgive the sins of others. We somehow believe that we should be forgiven by God, but others should not be forgiven by us. And the real question that often comes up in scripture is this. Are we somehow better than God that we should withhold forgiveness? Are we somehow better than him? Have we been offended more deeply than God has? Who are we exactly that we should withhold forgiveness? but God should grant it, especially to us. So people have hurt you. That is the human experience. Brace yourself for round two. Just get ready. I remember the first time that somebody really hurt me in ministry. I called a a mentor of mine, and I poured my guts out to him. And he said this, yep, and it's going to happen again. So stop sniveling. He didn't say that, but I could hear it in his voice. Grow up, be a man, extend forgiveness, and serve people. Yeah. People have cheated you. That's, that's no special circumstance. It's been happening since Genesis 3, right? People have slandered your character. Hey, me too. My favorite is when they make it public through gossip. My second favorite is on Facebook. I don't know that I've trended yet on Twitter, so maybe I'm not that big of a deal. But it's usually shared with hundreds of people before it makes it to me. Yeah, who cares? It's usually the most spiritual people that do it, and, and, and they think that they can, they're doing something righteous even though in the process they're violating Scripture. Matthew 18 says, you need to bring it to me just as I need to bring it to you. But instead, they bring it to the public. I hope they're watching right now. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Jesus and the rest of Scripture would have us forgive them quickly and fully. And when we do it quickly and fully, it's easier to forgive the next offense. Get in the habit of, of just forgiving people. They're sinners like you. you know, forgive. And Jesus says, forgive them so that your Father in Heaven will forgive you. You know, people that live with, in constant unforgiveness are the most intolerable people on the planet. They're bitter. They're hard to be around. And then they come to my office and they spill their guts out and I say, you know what your problem is? You need to forgive. <gasps> How dare you? Do you know what those people have done? I don't care. I really don't care. God the Father has forgiven you, and your sins against him are far more grievous than what these people have done to you. And I know that there's some heinous things that have been committed against us. I know, I know. I care about you, but I care about you forgiving people so that you can be free, and so that in forgiveness, you can then become more like God. Because bitterness and all of that stuff, it's more like the devil. It's time by faith to leave all of that in God's court, to leave it in his court, in his hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul said, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a complaint against someone. Forgive others even as the Lord forgave you. Later, Paul says, he forgave you in Christ Jesus. That means he had to kill his son in order to extend forgiveness to you. I think you can forgive other people. James says that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James 2.13. The other quotation was Colossians 3.12 and 13. Jesus would say, there's no sense in going to my Father for forgiveness if you refuse to grant forgiveness to those who've offended you. Don't waste your time, okay? Don't waste your time. Verse 13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. As we said last week, the original language does not need to imply that God would lead us into temptation if we failed to ask for deliverance. Okay? The language can very reasonably render, be rendered in the English this way. Do not allow us to be led into temptation, but deliver us from the evil <coughs> Why should we pray this prayer? I think some people actually think that. The, the reason is, is because we have not yet been delivered from our sin nature, which is ever contrary to the things of God. It's always enticed by the things of the world, and we still live in the world. And then prowling about in the world is the enemy of our souls, an expert on deception, lies, temptation, you know, division, lust, self-righteousness, pride, Selfishness, doubt, unbelief, all his specialties. All his specialties. And you're his target. (laughs) If something is offensive to God and destructive to man, Satan is all over it. And by the time the damage is done, he's nowhere in sight. And if you think you're somehow untouchable or strong enough to stand against the wiles of the devil, you are among the most vulnerable. Paul warned the Corinthians about this attitude, saying, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands stands, take heed lest he fall. He who thinks he stands. And this was true of Samson, it's true of David, true of Solomon, three men who stumbled in lust and paid dearly for it. I like the story in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. You know, Jesus comes to Peter at one time and he said, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Uh, the figure of speech, of course, we don't use that today, but it's not like It's it's not hard to figure out. Satan wanted to take Peter down in the worst way. He wanted to destroy Peter. To which Jesus said, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brother. You guys, Peter's only line of defense was the Son of God standing between him and Satan. And it's a good line of defense, as long as you keep Jesus between you and Satan. Now, Jesus's words were meant to be sobering, humbling. He meant to put Peter's self-confidence in check in order to protect him. But Peter's pride opened him up to Satan so that Satan could get a piece of him, which Jesus alludes to by the words, and when you have returned, Jesus knew he was going to fall. So Peter's, of course, stepped out in self-confidence. He started by cutting somebody's ear off. Not his most glorious moment. He missed. And just as the Proverbs say, what comes before a fall? Pride. And he denied Christ three times. But because Jesus was upholding and protecting Peter from utter destruction, we know that Peter was restored and he was made useful to his brethren. My counsel to you would be save yourself the embarrassment and shame. Humble yourself and cry out to God for his protection. Amen. Those who fail to humble themselves, they leave the door wide open for Satan to assist their failure. And you guys, the consequences can be grave. You know, they 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 say rightfully it takes years to build a good reputation. It can take one word to destroy it. It can take a moment of pride and weakness and Satan can wreck you. He wrecks ministries, he wrecks families. Yeah. Humility doesn't just protect us, it protects our witness. It protects believers around us, it protects our church. It's good for us to not think of ourselves more highly than, than we are. We're not as strong as we think. We're no match for the devil. Let's finish the rest of verse 13. i got to get you out of here. <clears throat> Depending on the version of the Bible you use, it may or may not have the doxology at the end of the verse, which reads this way. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, This is a doxology. A doxology is a statement that attributes glory to God. This doxology is both beautiful and it's theologically accurate. It can be supported throughout the rest of the scriptures, but some of you do not have these words in the Bible you use. The question is, why? Well, as the statement can be supported by many other passages of scripture, it is not supported by the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. In other words, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible, New Testament, do not have these words in them. So, if Jesus did not say these words, and if Matthew did not record them for us, how did they get into the text? How did they get into the text? Now, we know from historical writings from the early church that the Lord's Prayer was recited in their liturgies during Sunday worship, okay? All over the Mediterranean, but not all the same, okay? And not all the doxologies were the same. Doxologies were frequently added when closing the liturgical service. A doxology like this one, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How did this happen? How did it get into the text? Well, there's a few theories of how it happens. Uh, A resident scribe probably wrote this particular doxology into the margin of the church's Bible. Not intending to add anything to the sacred text, but purely for liturgical purposes. Now, I say the church's Bible because uh, the congregants in the first 1,500 years of the church, and even a little more, they didn't have Bibles. Okay? The church had a Bible. The only people that had Bibles were those that were extremely wealthy. Imagine paying someone to pen every word in the Bible for you. How many of you guys have transcribed the whole Bible? Why wouldn't you do that? Because it would take you forever. (laughs) Because we have a printing press, amen? (laughs) So each church had a Bible. Or, in the earliest years, they had part of a Bible. Part of a Bible. Well, sometime after this scribe made his marginal note, the same Bible was then passed on to the next scribe, whose job it was to preserve the text by making a new copy. But when he sat down to make the new copy, he couldn't tell the difference between the text and the marginal note made by the last scribe. And so he innocently added the doxology to the text, thinking that it was a part of the original. That's one theory. Okay? It's not a bad one, especially when you look at the manuscript data, the actual manuscripts. Scribes constantly wrote notes, okay? which is a good thing. How many guys write notes in your Bible? Now, if you were a copyist and it was all written in your handwriting, or the copyist before you, you might accidentally think that that note belongs in the text, okay? Today, the way that we distinguish the original text from a scribal error is we look at the manuscripts that are older, and in this case, it's a body of manuscripts that are much older and much closer to the original. The later manuscripts, which are far more recent, those that have been you know, copied many, many times throughout the centuries, actually have a variety of different doxologies at the end of verse 13, which implies that the different churches had their own doxology to conclude their services. The one that we have in the King James and the New King James was the doxology that was most widely accepted in the traditional text called the Textus Receptus, we say the received text. But the oldest manuscripts, which were copied and then preserved in, in places like libraries, were later discovered. And they just do not have the doxology in them. And what's interesting is some of these manuscripts are as early as the second century. 2nd They're very, very old. Now, these variants uh, that we have in the scriptures used to bother me <laughs> deeply until I began to study the manuscript data and the various manuscript traditions. Okay, It's important to understand that there are nearly 30,000 manuscripts just of the New Testament. That is a lot, okay? Almost 30,000 just of the New Testament. No other ancient document comes close, not even close, to the witness of the New Testament data, and among them, the variants, at least, in the New Testament are completely insignificant. insignificant. When we consider all the evidence, all the variants, all the manuscripts, there's no doubt that we have what was originally inspired by the Holy Spirit, Okay. Whatever variants exist among the manuscripts, no doctrine has been added, no doctrine has been taken away, nothing from the original has been compromised. In fact, the vast majority of all variants in question are things like the difference in spelling of words, whereas the meaning remains exactly the same. It's, it's things like that that make up the vast majority of all variants. <coughs> Another interesting fact is that when you take all the writings and the commentaries from the pastors and scholars from the first 300 years of the church, you can compile the entire New Testament minus 15 words. So think about that. They quoted so frequently from the Bible, the scriptures, that if we had no manuscripts of the Bible, and no Bible at all, we could reconstruct our own Bible from their quotation, minus 15 words. Think we could survive? I think so. Okay, real quick, if you're, if you're interested in studying the, the biblical manuscripts, there are tons of great resources out there. I think there's two that are the most comprehensive, and uh, they're semi-technical, but they're made for everybody. <clears throat> the first one is From God to Us, from Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe, From God to Us. And the other one, which is really good, it's, it's really uh, brief, it's Are the New Testament Documents Reliable?, from FF Bruce. If you need those names later, I can I can give them to you. Let's stand up and pray. I've been going long in second service and I'm I have to repent. Because my Sunday school teachers have kids with nothing to do. So to all the Sunday school teachers in here, I, I apologize. I'm gonna do better at being a little more timely for, for for your sake. Well, Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your instruction. And Lord, I believe that. In, in providing this instruction, it, it is to help to sober us, Lord. To help us think clearly in regard to what is, what is happening when we come before you. That we'd understand that you are our Father. You're a Daddy who cares deeply for us. But we're not to come before you presumptuously, Lord. You are the Sovereign of the universe. Lord, help us to be like Isaiah, to be, to be struck by your majesty. To come boldly, but trembling. Lord, help us to, to recognize ourselves ourselves in light of your, your holiness. And Lord, help us not to trust in anything in this world, but to put all of our confidence in you for all of our needs. Lord, help us to be diligent in our prayers in regard to your kingdom and your will being manifested here. Lord, help us to participate in our petition by preaching the gospel. And Lord, I, I know that people in, in our fellowship have been wounded deeply by others, but your command does not change. I pray, Lord, that, that they would come to you in faith, believing, Lord, that, that you are the, the best person to handle their, the wounds that they have, Lord, and the injustice that's been committed against them, and that they would leave it all in your hands, Lord. And Lord, I know that it, it seems at least that less and less people are committed to prayer. I just pray that you would bring deep conviction in our hearts to, to have that discipline, to enjoy the privilege of prayer, you as our Father want us to fellowship with you, want us to be in your presence. So Lord, draw us in, renew us in this regard, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Lord bless you guys. Love you.